Good morning, church family. We all like to know how long something's going to take. So instant rice takes about two minutes in the microwave. A soft-boiled egg, like a good soft-boiled egg, you start with the boiling water and it's, it's eight minutes and then you get it right into the ice bath. Bacon takes about 10 to 12 minutes in the oven on 400 degrees. If you pull it out, it's just right. Pizza's delivered in 30 minutes or less, right? And Amazon will get your package there in two days. So we, we like to know exactly how long things are going to take. And I could go on and on. And I, we could go around the room and ask people, how long exactly is it going to take you to drive home? How long does it take your favorite restaurant to make your favorite meal? How long does it take to, you know, to heat something up in the microwave? You know, I, I have certain things I buy and I throw the instructions away because I know exactly how long it's going to take. And, and we like to know exactly how long things are going to be. We're, we're, that's, that's just ingrained in our culture now. So, so let's ask a hard question then. How long does it take God to answer your prayers? When, how long does he take to answer prayers? And, and what is he doing while he's answering your prayers? You know, is, is are, while you're waiting, what is, what is God up to? And, and be honest with yourself for a moment. Does the phrase, God's going to do it in his own timing, is that comforting to your soul? Or is that just a, a cry of desperation? Well, God, hurry up. How long, O oh Lord? Thankfully, we are not left alone with these questions. The Bible answers these questions and quite bluntly. This morning, we're going to start kind of an excursus into the Old Testament to study the book of Habakkuk. So we'll be looking at chapter 1 of Habakkuk this morning, and then we'll consider the other two books of Habakkuk later this summer. So uh, next week, John will be preaching 1 John again, and then I'll be back to preach Habakkuk in a few weeks. So we'll be going through Habakkuk kind of as a, as a, side, a side series here. But... I'm excited to study the book of Habakkuk with you for three reasons. The first is that Habakkuk grapples with these hard theological questions that we can ask, namely the timing and activity of God. What is God up to? Why is he delaying? As well as the problem of evil. Why does it seem like evil is thriving? So these are things that Habakkuk's going to grapple with with us. And what, what do we do about the problem of evil existing in the world? And then we'll also see in our study that the prophet is going to ask God these questions directly. Why does, evil, why does God allow evil to exist? And we'll see both God's answers as well as Habakkuk's response. He's going to have follow-up questions as he doesn't get the, quite the answers he wants to get. So God will answer his question, then Habakkuk's going to come back again with more questions. The second reason I'm excited to study this book with you is that Habakkuk is ultimately a book about faith. If you already have your Bibles open, look at Habakkuk 2.4. This is the, the most critical verse of the entire book. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, speaking of the wicked. And then it says, But the righteous shall live by faith. And this is the message of Habakkuk. If you take only one thing away from Habakkuk, it's this. The righteous shall live by faith. And the whole book of Habakkuk, all three chapters, is answering the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that we live by faith? Faith in what? Faith against what? What are we having faith in? How does, how does that actually work out in my daily life? And so that's, that's such, I think, an important topic for us. Because faith is not a light switch. It's not, you know, you turn your, your faith on or you turn your faith off. Faith is something that grows. It grows over time. It grows in our knowledge and understanding the scriptures. Or it wanes. It suffers under trial. Faith is something that, that can become stronger. It can become weaker. 
And so if your faith is being tested, my prayer is that Habakkuk would strengthen your faith. This is a good book to go to when you feel exhausted, when you feel the stress of trials in your life, and you're saying, God, my faith feels weary. Help me to remember what I have faith in. Now, the third reason I want to study Habakkuk is that Habakkuk is very easily lost in the middle of the Minor Prophets. And I want you to see both his book and the other prophets at large as exciting and approachable as they should be. You see, Habakkuk's writing style in these three short chapters shares so many characteristics with all of the other Minor Prophets. He's, he's a great place to start because he teaches you how to, how to understand the writing style of a lot of the other prophets. And so he's, he's a great book to read to begin to understand how do I discern the minor prophets? How do I get into the minor prophets and understand? And so Habakkuk is going to address both God's people as well as foreign powers. He's going to look in the past as well as the future. He's going to capture the grand character of God in a way that our American brains don't always like to think about God, or things that we would miss easily. And so my hope and prayer in Habakkuk is that it'll help you to draw, first and foremost, closer to God, but also inspire you to spend more time in, in the minor prophets, both the major and the minor prophets. You know, well, If you're reading through the Bible in a year, be excited when you get to the prophets. That there's, there's so much good to be gleaned out of them. With all that said, Follow along as I read Habakkuk 1, our text for this morning. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround and righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march to the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth for themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their god. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up, the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his nest and mercilessly killing nations forever? This morning's thesis is that God cannot abide evil, but he can use it for his own purposes. 
God cannot abide evil. He cannot look upon evil, but he can use it for his own purposes. Now, this chapter is divided fairly neatly into three sections. So we'll look first at Habakkuk's first question. Why does God allow injustice to thrive? And then we'll look at God's answer. I am raising up the Chaldeans. Habakkuk has questions. So we will look at his second set of questions. Well, God, how can you use evil men to accomplish your purpose? So, Habakkuk. Not much is known about the prophet Habakkuk, except that he writes his book towards the very end of the kingdom of Judah. So timeline-wise, Habakkuk comes after the fall of Israel. The Babylonians have already overrun Israel. So this is post-Hosea, but it comes before the first captivity. So this is before Daniel, before Ezekiel, if you're thinking about the timeline of the Old Testament. The book of Habakkuk is a warning about the coming of the Chaldeans. They took out the wickedness of Israel, but Judah is not safe from their own wickedness and the judgment that's coming on them. Now, the Chaldeans, or as we know them, they're the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is writing this book as a mixture of genres. So in chapter 1, we see this question and answer. There's a question and a prophecy given in a dialogue. Chapter 2 will be slightly different. Habakkuk will be given a vision, a second answer to the second question. And then God is going to propose five riddles. You don't often think of riddles in the Bible, but chapter 2, there are five riddles. God says, here are five riddles. So next, when we look at chapter 2, we'll consider the, the riddles that God gives. And finally, in chapter 3, Habakkuk is overcome with a desire to praise and to pray. So we look at both the prayer and the praise in chapter 3 when we get to chapter 3. But let's start with the dialogue, with, the, with these questions here in chapter 1. So looking at our first section, chapters two th verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk's first question, why does God allow injustice to thrive? Now, Habakkuk begins by being very honest. He's very open about the truth of his circumstances. His whole country is marked by injustice and violence. It's interesting because Habakkuk never really focuses on a certain group in Jerusalem or it's the city of Jerusalem's fault. You know, it's the city folk's fault, not the country folk's fault. Or, you know, it's this political leader or this king or it's the priests who, it's, they're the ones who are screwing everything up. He recognizes that sin has pervaded all aspects of culture. There's, there's, there's no part of their city that's good anymore. Everything has been perverted. There's no justice anywhere he looks. And so he, he recognizes and is honest with God that wickedness is all around him, that he can't escape it. His questions are about his circumstances. Why am I seeing the things I'm seeing? Why am I feeling the things I'm feeling? But he's not asking those questions of his circumstances. You know, God, why are our politicians so bad? God, why are, you know, why are our priests, you know, perverting the truth? He, instead, he takes the questions to God. God, why are you allowing evil? He's cutting to the heart of the matter. He's, he's getting below the surface. And I think we can learn something from that here. And, and the two things that we can learn are this. God wants to hear Habakkuk's complaints and questions. You notice how it goes right from verse 1 to verse 2. The oracle that the prophet saw begins with the prophet asking his questions. You know, God is opening the floor to Habakkuk saying, come, ask me questions. I will give you an oracle. What do you want to know? And Habakkuk is welcomed in to know God and know what God is doing. And the second thing is Habakkuk, like I said, is honest about the sins of the nations. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't come up with, oh, it's the society we live in or try to make up reasons or excuses. He wants to know the truth. Why does God not punish evil? Now, I know for myself personally, I, I, I'm a news junkie. 
I love to look at the headlines and try to come up with theories about where is the direction our country going? Where is the direction that our convention is going? Where is the direction the world's going? What's going to happen with all the foreign wars? But Habakkuk cuts all the way through that and asks the real question, God, what are you doing? What are, what's your plan and all of the chaos I see around me? And I think that's a good reminder, a good place for us to stop and with Habakkuk ask this, these deeper questions. Now, Habakkuk's main problem is that he feels like God doesn't seem to be answering. So he wants to know why. Why is God tolerant of evil? And, and he repeats his question over and over again and, and changes it. It's like, if you, like he has a diamond in his hand. And he's turning it over and over, looking at each facet individually. And so we see he asks six different questions. And, and they're all in the same theme, but different ways of stating the problem. So let's look at his six different questions across three verses broken out. First question, how long? This is a question of timing. God, what is your timetable? How long is this going to go on for? Second question, can God even hear? Has God decided not to respond? Is, is God busy on another line somewhere and we're just stuck on hold? Why, why is God not listening? Is he unable to listen? And this is the third question. Is God unwilling to save? We might ask this question like, have I done something to make God want, not want to help me anymore? Have we been so bad that God has just written us off and he's, he doesn't care about us anymore? You know, is God ghosting us? Is God you know, refusing to answer our messages anymore, refusing to pick up the phone? He just doesn't want to even talk to us anymore. Does God even still care about me? And, and this brings us to the fourth question. Why can I not stop witnessing evil? You know, I go to the market and there's evil. I go to the, the temple and there's evil. I go to the palace and there's evil. I go to my own home and there's evil. Everywhere I look, it's evil, 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 evil. Why can I not get away from all of the evil in this world? He's exhausted. This is something that, that we often can feel as well. Have you, have you felt like no matter where you turn, no matter which song you listen to, no matter which show you watch, no matter which movie you go to, game you play, person you hang out with, evil always has to get brought up. Everything is evil all around us in our culture. And the fifth question, this is where I think it, it gets so painful. He says, why does it seem like God doesn't even care? You know, is his God just withdrawn? And this, this is important because he's asking now, is, is God apathetic? Does God just not care anymore about how bad we are? And then finally, why is justice and the law paralyzed? And what he's really asking here is this. If, if evil is able to paralyze good, as he says, if evil distorts it so that, that justice goes forth perverted, does this mean that evil is stronger than good? If evil surrounds good and suppresses it, well, doesn't that mean evil is stronger than good? And you hear his fear in this that God is withdrawing, that God is getting further away, that evil has grown stronger and stronger. Has evil won? Is evil winning? And so, so Habakkuk has, brings these questions to God. Now, taken as a whole, do you hear the progression of the questions? Habakkuk is showing us in these first couple of verses how, how fear can assault the mind of a Christian, how fear can begin to wash over you and cause you to begin to question God and, and those questions to grow and grow and get stronger and stronger. The hurts and sins of these worlds can feel like they drive God farther away from us and weaken our faith. And you may have experienced this. I've, I've watched this attack myself and many people dear to me where it seemed as every time I talked to them, their fears grew bigger and their faith grew smaller. And so this is why it's so important to study a book about Habakkuk 
and, and build up our faith in God. You see, the sins of this world make God seem far off, but the Bible recognizes this is what fear does. The Bible's not afraid to address this matter. And so the question becomes, how do we fight back against the fears that, the, that, that come against us? How do we fight back against these kind of questions? We must find answers to the questions when we get into this hard place. And where do we go to seek answers to the Bible, to what God says? This is why the book of Habakkuk was written. The whole Bible was written to give us an answer for our questions, to strengthen our faith. God doesn't want us to be caught up in fear or to look for ourselves for our answers. We're not supposed to just drum up faith from inside ourselves. We're supposed to find our faith in what God has done for us and preserved in the Scriptures. Now, if you're struggling with these questions, before I move on, I want to consider some ways to help you address them. I think, first, it must be said, we have to also be honest. If you're struggling with questions about God, take them to God. You know, if, if another person has done something and you don't understand why, the best way to find out is to go to them and ask. You know, why did you do that? What, what was your motivation there? And, and if, if there's things that God has done, and you say, why, God, did you allow this to happen? Take that question to God. As we see right from the beginning in Habakkuk, God is not afraid to answer the question of what he is doing. He's not ashamed that he's raising up the Chaldeans. He knows what he's doing, and he has a greater plan, more so than we can often see. Another thing, though, I think that can be very helpful is to keep a prayer journal, a list of things you're praying for. And this can help you both to be more intentional in remembering what to pray every day, but also helping you to remember the ways that God has acted. You see, my family kept a prayer journal when I was a child, and it had a profound effect on me. You see, when I was, when I was young, my parents made my siblings and I keep a prayer journal. So when we did family worship, every month we'd have to write in this journal all, the little all our prayer requests down in this little tiny notebook. And then when the prayers were answered, we'd put a big check mark. And any prayer that wasn't answered would be copied over to the next month. And we'd flip the page. And this notebook was always kept open. So we were always flipping pages and copying prayer requests. And to be honest, I hated doing this. I, as, you know, as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, I hated keeping the prayer journal. Because it felt like we had a to-do list for God, and God was never getting around to doing his to-do list. You know, I have to do all my chores, but here we are presenting these things to God. You know, where are you, God? you got to get on this list. Some of these things have been on here for six months, a year. You know, it's about time to get on this. And, you know, and as, as a small child, I couldn't understand, well, why doesn't God just answer everything immediately? But soon after my conversion, around when I was saved around 15, 16, I remember one day asking myself, you know what? We always keep the prayer journal open. What's on the first page? And so I picked this, journal, this, this old journal up, and I went back to the first page for the first time ever, really, since we'd started it. And the, the handwriting was terrible because 10-year-old Jared scrawling. Um, but I'm looking at this journal going, wait a second. Every single prayer, prayer request here has been answered. And the next page, every single prayer here was answered. And God answered these prayers. And God answered these prayers. And as I'm going through this journal... What felt like unanswered prayers, the first half of this journal, everything had been answered. And oftentimes in ways that we never saw, never expected. And suddenly this journal went from being a chore to being a blessing. And I realized, oh, wait a second. God was doing something the entire time. God was hearing the prayers of my family the whole time. He was working in ways I could never expect. And so by, by writing it down, it helped me to see God at work. God working through years of answering my family's prayers. And the, the only reason I hadn't noticed is because my own frailty, my own selfishness, 
my own impatience kept me from seeing. And so I'd encourage you, if you're able, keep, keep a prayer log. Go back and look at prayer request sheets from years past and, and ask yourself, how did God work in ways I never expected? And if you, if you don't have a prayer journal to look back on, think about all of the times that you've prayed. Think about what you were praying for a year ago. People you were praying for a year ago. The, the prayers of before you got the job you have, before you got the relationships, you know, before you found your spouse, for those who are, who are married or who are dating, when you, you know, the prayers of when you were single. Think about all of the prayers, all of the healing that God has worked in your life. And remember that God was working through that entire time. You weren't stuck in a queue. You weren't stuck in the waiting room. God was working. You just couldn't see it yet. And so this is, this is the beginning of us understanding what God is doing, is recognizing, yes, there is evil all around us. Yes, we have prayer requests. But God is actively working in ways we can't always see until the answer comes. So I encourage you, remember God's faithfulness in the past. Let's look now at God's first answer, though, and how God is working in Habakkuk's situation. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is the answer that Habakkuk was not expecting. You see, the Chaldeans being the Babylonians. If you study the Old Testament at all, they're very familiar and very notorious. This early great empire invented a lot of, of ancient era technology. They were used by God to punish and destroy Israel and then eventually Judah as well. And they, they took over all of the Middle East. They were one of the great great empires, and they were marked by sin, they were marked by idol worship, and they were used by God to punish the generations of sin in his people in Israel and Judah. But notice how God describes them. This, this tone that God takes, it's so unexpected, I love it. You see, God sees the enemies, he sees this evil nation, and he takes a tone that's both almost bragging about them, you hear, the, you hear almost the bragging tone in the chapter when we read it? And, and, but also a little bit derisive. And, and it's not what Habakkuk expects. The way that God is speaking about the Chaldeans reminds me kind of of a nature documentary almost. Like there's a sense of wonder and respect and strength and ingenuity and yet recognition of limitations. So imagine, the, the, imagine for a moment you're watching a documentary on termites, right? Termites are little tiny bugs. They can build massive towers and mounds over, over 12 feet tall, these little tiny bugs. They, they use dirt and spit, and they build towers. It's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty impressive. So, you know, you look at that and you go, oh, wow, what amazing bugs. They can, you know, build this 20-foot-tall tower out of spit. That's pretty impressive. And yet, a 20-foot-tall tower of dirt and spit next to the skyscrapers of Dallas not really impressive anymore, is it? You know, we are building with steel, with glass, with all of our technology. We actually have like rooms inside of our buildings instead of just random tunnels. You know, human ingenuity, human architecture is amazing and wonderful in a way that termites can never hope to even reach. The termite towers are cool compared to other bugs, but compared to the ingenuity of, that God has given humans, termites aren't even close. They're not on our level, they're bugs. And so this is the tone that God takes with the Chaldeans, yeah, Really impressive for an ancient civilization. All right, you figured out earthworks, you figured out siege engines, you got really good at riding horses. Good job as an ancient civilization. Very impressive. But you're not at God's level. And, and so God takes, takes this tone with him. Notice three things from the second section, verses 5 through 11. The first and most important, God says, I am doing the work. 
God takes credit for everything. This is my, by my power, the Chaldeans will be raised up. Chaldeans didn't decide to become a people. I decided to let them. Going back to our termites for one more second here. This is God saying, these termites, I could have stomped the nest. I could have poisoned the nest. I'm going to let them build their tower of spit. And they're going to feel really cool in their tower of spit because they were able to build this big thing. But they only built that because I didn't take a bulldozer and run it over. And so God is saying, I'm letting the Chaldeans raise themselves up. I'm letting them figure out mathematics. I'm letting them figure out warfare. I'm letting them have all this technology. But that's me letting them. This is not them being so amazing on their own. God is the one in control of the Chaldeans. They can't do anything. They can't find out a single fact about nature or capture a single horse without God letting them do so. And then look at verse 8. He really goes, he really spends these verses talking about their horses. Horses swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. They got really neat horses. Now, why is this in the Bible? Why, why is God talking about Chaldean horses? Well, in chapter 3, verse 8, I'll, let, I'll go ahead and jump ahead just a little bit here. In chapter 3, verse 8, uh, Habakkuk begins to describe God and what God does with his horses. There's a metaphor here, and he's setting up this metaphor. So chapter 3, verse 8, if you look at it, it says, Habakkuk about God, when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. And then he says in verse 10, the mountains saw you and writhed and raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. And so there's a two-part metaphor here. And the first part is the Chaldeans are masters of the horse. They can conquer any nation they please. They're so powerful, right? And then in chapter 3, God, when he rides on his horses, can cause a mountain to flatten, to cause rivers to surrender. And again, there's that, there's that parallel of, oh, it's, it's impressive that you can conquer a, a nation. But to conquer a mountain, to, to flatten the mountain with your horses, that's a thousand times more difficult. You know, the, the Chaldeans could never flatten a mountain. They could never stop a river in the same way God can. And so God is building up their horse prowess for two reasons. One, to show a parallel with what he's going to be saying about himself, but also, again, that subtle reminder of who created the horses? Who created the leopards? Who created the eagles? Who created the evening wolves? These are all God's creation. Everything that they have is borrowed. These are God's creation. He made it. He's letting them have it. They didn't come up with some horses on their own. They're God's horses and God's creation. They had to start from where he let them start. They only have access to horses because God put them on the map near where they live. And so God is both showing their power to contrast with his power, but also reminding us that their power is borrowed from him. He's, he's building them up as he puts them down, so to speak. And I, I think that's important for us to recognize about them. Finally, verse 10, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. Scoffing, laughing, this word is repeated a few times. Did you catch that word in Psalm 2? It's the same word in the Hebrew. When, when utter derision is used, normally utter derision is something attributed to God. God shows utter derision towards the nations. He laughs at the kings and says, Ha! You think you're in charge, but I am God and you are my creation and I will overrule. And so, for God to use this word of utter derision to describe the Chaldeans, He's pointing out what, what Habakkuk is about to say again in the next section. The Chaldeans think that they're God. 
They think that all of their power and all their might makes them like gods and that they get to laugh. But God is very much saying here, I'm going to have the last laugh. You can laugh now, but you won't be laughing when I'm done with you. I will have the final plan. Your plan of conquering the world isn't going to go so well. You know, the, the, the Babylonian Empire ended a really long time ago. A really long, like thousands of years ago, and it's never come back. Why? Because God said it was done. And when God said the Babylonians were done and it's time to be done having Babylonians, their empire ended and it never came back. And other nations have risen and taken that place in that, that part of the world. And so God makes it clear that he will be the one to laugh, not them. So they're laughing now, but they won't be laughing forever. And so he's, in, even in his answer, alluding to other passages, alluding later into the book and showing, hey, they seem strong now. Your enemies seem great, but they're not that great. And so this picture of coming judgment, this picture of the Chaldeans, Habakkuk is kind of blown away by this answer. He doesn't feel like his questions were answered, but they were in a sense. So let's go back to the six questions and look at how God answered them. First question, how long, verse 5, in your day? When is God going to act? Very soon, in your lifetime. God is coming to answer. Can God hear? Yes. He hears both the evil of the nation of Judah to punish them, and he hears the laughter of the Chaldeans that he's raising up. Is God unwilling to help? Well, God will put an end to all of the evildoers in the land. Why can I not stop witnessing evil? Well, God will be using the greater evil of the Chaldeans to punish and end the wickedness of Judah. The wickedness of Judah is going to end. Why does it seem like God doesn't care? Well, because God is patient. Do you, do you hear God's patience in how he talks about the Chaldeans? He's slowly raising them up. He's causing them to invade other nations. He's giving Judah as much time as possible. The Chaldeans didn't attack Judah first. They attacked a lot of other places. Judah had time to turn to the Lord. And so God is being patient with them, but his patience has an end. There is a day of judgment coming. And so, yes, it's not that God doesn't care. It's that God is kind and he's patient. And he's giving them every opportunity to turn before the judgment comes. But the judgment will come. And the last question I think is very interesting because he says, you know, why does wickedness feel like, we're like it's surrounding us? Well, God says here, and you'll notice he talks about the fortresses and the earthworks. That's a surrounding technique. So, so back he says, evil has surrounded me. And God says, I will surround evil with, my, with this army that I'm sending. All of these evil men of Judah who surround you will themselves be surrounded. This language of surrounding is coming. And so God answers Habakkuk's questions, every single one of them, but not, not the answer that Habakkuk was hoping for. And so Habakkuk has follow-up questions. Let's look now at verses 12 through 17, Habakkuk's second complaint, or his, his second set of questions. Now, verse 12, Habakkuk makes it clear he understands theology. He says, are you not from everlasting? A theological statement about God. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. He's acknowledging the holiness of God. I, okay, God, I, I understand who you are. I understand you're holy. He says, we shall not die, recognizing that God has promised to protect and sustain the righteous. He's like, all right, I, I'm stating the truth. You're holy. You've promised to protect the righteous. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. I get why you're raising the Chaldeans. We need to be, the nation of Judah needs punished. Chaldeans are your punishment. I'm on track with that, God. 
You're my rock. And this word rock comes up over and over again, especially in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. Israel was a very rocky nation. And, and these large rocks were the perfect hiding place. You could climb up into the rocks to escape from wild animals or rival nations. They would build fortresses and, and castles up in these rocks, these, these places of safety. And so to say, O oh Lord, my rock, is the highest compliment. It says, God, in your arms I feel safe. And so this, this term of endearment, God, you are my rock, my strong fortress. It, it comes up in some of the hymns we sing. God is our rock and our fortress, our place where we feel safe. There's no place he feels safer than with God. And so he recognizes, God, you've established yourself as a place of safety. You are the one of reproof. You have pure eyes because you're holy, and you cannot look at wrong. So here's the question. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows them up? Why are you using wicked people to accomplish your purpose? And this is what Habakkuk is confused by. Now, notice a few things here. First of all, we'll, we'll get to the full answer uh, next time when we look at chapter 2, but there's, there's a bunch of important things here. Notice in his question that he assumes the wickedness of Judah is greater than the wickedness of the Chaldeans. Yes, the Chaldeans are a wicked people. They sacrifice to idols. They are ravaging the land and conquering nations. But the wickedness of Judah is directly before God. They have God's temple, and they're still choosing to worship idols and to commit evil before the eyes of the Lord. And so this, this idea of, well, they're more wicked than we are, is probably the beginning of where we can see that Habakkuk isn't seeing clearly. He wants to see his sin and his nation's sin as less than the sins of everybody else. You know, okay, God, why are you, you know, why are these really bad people attacking us? We're only sort of bad. You know, he was just saying at the beginning of the chapter how, how wicked they were, but as soon as the Chaldeans are brought up, oh, well, we're not as bad as they are. And, and he wants to, to shift kind of the, the, the otis of evil to somebody else. And, and I think we can learn from that because this is oftentimes how we want to talk about our own sin. You know, oh, my sin is bad. But as soon as we bring somebody else into the equation, you know, another nation, another people group, another religion, uh, you know, another coworker, whoever it is, well, their sin is way worse than I. I don't do half the stuff that they do. And so Habakkuk is showing us a little bit of his human weakness here by, by trying to shift just a little bit of the blame. You know, God, you can't use the Chaldeans to attack us. They're worse than we are. Surely that's, that's not the right answer. And, and so he's, he's trying to just shift the, the wickedness over to their side. But God is establishing a very important precedent. You see, God can and will use evil to accomplish his purposes. And if you remember back in our study of Genesis, this is what we saw in the life of Joseph. Joseph saw great wickedness used to establish him, to rescue God's people. God, over and over and over again, uses wicked people to accomplish his purposes. And, and this is all building up to the cross. Habakkuk's questions are going to ultimately be answered on the cross. How can God use wicked people? Well, God will use wicked people to put Jesus to death and to die for our sins. Peter says this in his sermon. Look with me, if you would, for a moment at Acts 2, 22 through 24. Acts 2, 22 through 24. This is Peter's first sermon right out of Pentecost. Listen to how Peter, Peter describes the death of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you hear both of those two truths existing together? You killed Jesus. You put to death the Son of God. God foreordained it. God knew that you evil men would do this horrible thing. But it was God's plan all along that it would happen. Because Jesus must die so that our sins would be paid for, so that we would be made right before God. Jesus had to die at the hands of sinful men. And God orchestrated this whole event. All of human history was leading up to that point, to Jesus' death on the cross. And so, so God was, was orchestrating and organizing this. And Habakkuk rightly is recognizing that it seems like God is just raising up evil nation to take evil nation, and then another evil nation arises and takes. This is, this is seen in the book of Daniel. Daniel has given a, a vision of a statue, and each statue is a different piece. So the Babylonians are going to get overtaken by the Persians, and then the Persians are going to get overtaken by Alexander the Great, and then the Greeks are going to fail, and here comes the Romans, and wave after wave of more sinful nations taking over other sinful nations. But it wasn't just sinful nations punishing sinful nations for all of human history. All of it was leading up and building up to the cross, to, to what God was going to do to work his purposes. And it's so important that we begin to understand this, that God's plan is not just an endless cycle of punishments, an endless cycle of nations causing war against other nations. God is working to bring Jesus and to bring salvation through the cross by the hands of the wicked men who put him to death, so that God raises him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus finished his mission. He accomplished it. And in completing his mission, rising again, going to the right hand of the Father, and interceding for us, Christ's mission is complete. And this, this, this payment of sin, this is what we call atonement. Christ's atonement required evil men to put him to death. And so God works atonement so that our sins can be paid for and so that we can have our way made right with God. So God can look at us and say, your sins are paid for, paid for by Christ. His righteousness is accredited to you. You are now my son, my daughter. You are now my child. And we are made right with God. This is the gospel. So God's plan was not raising up endless nations to fight nations. God's plan was to build a people, not of an, one ethnicity, but of all ethnicities, drawn together. People from every tribe and tongue and language, drawn together as one family, built in the common belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We become a family under God, and this is the nation that God is building. Not just the nation of Israel, not just nations attacking the nation of Israel, but all leading up to God establishing his people forever. What Habakkuk cannot see yet is that God's will will use evil for a greater purpose than punishing sin. He will use evil men to orchestrate the rescue of his people. Now let's look again back at Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk closes out this chapter with a fishing analogy. He goes to fishing to try to, try to illustrate his point to God. God, I'm wrestling with this, and the best way I can describe it is in fishing terms. So let me walk you through the fishing question here and explain exactly what he says here. So look with me, starting in verse Habakkuk 1, verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. 
So in this analogy, mankind, all of humanity are just fish, swimming around, doing their own thing, being fish. You, Verse 15, he, referring to the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with a net. He gathers them into his dragnet. You think of that as the, the horses, the earthworks, the armies of the Chaldeans gathering all the nations, and all of the nations are being sold into captivity under, under the Chaldeans. But look at this. He gathers them in his dragnet. He rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. And he's iterating what just God just said of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are blessed by God to harm the nations, but then they turn and worship themselves. They laugh and scoff as if they are gods. And, and Habakkuk is saying here, how can you give the nets the dragnets? How can you give weapons and technology and horses to the Chaldeans when they're going to turn around and just worship their horses? They're abusing the gifts you gave them, God. Why are you giving them more gifts if they're not going to, to respect you and honor you for it? And why are they they're worshiping their horses, God? Why are you giving them horses? It, it seems so strange to him that God would bless a people who in turn use that blessing to harm others and worship the blessing instead of the one giving the blessing. And then, of course, that final question he comes back to. Will this go on forever? What's the timeline? Where does this end? And we, of course, know it ends at the cross. This is all building up to the cross. But Habakkuk wants to know, why is, why is God working this way? And so we see again that God is going to, to, to work through the Chaldeans. That Yes, he has given them gifts. He's given them horses. But it's only for a short amount of time. The Chaldeans will not rule the earth forever. And we can, you know... Now in our place in history, look back and see the cross. We can look back and see, yes, the Chaldeans don't last that long. They're only around for a short amount of time, and then they get conquered themselves. But for Habakkuk, when he looks at the Chaldeans, he sees them as this, this massive world-ending threat. How will the world go on if the Chaldeans destroy everything? And we know from the hindsight of history that they won't, but Habakkuk is, is not aware of this. But, but Habakkuk is, like I said earlier, a book about faith. Chapter 2, verse 4, again, makes that clear. The righteous shall live by faith. So how does, how does Habakkuk have faith when the Chaldeans seem like they're going to destroy everything? How does, how does he have faith in the face of danger when he doesn't know the end of the story like we do? Well, Christians, followers of God, are not called to blind faith. We're called to know God. We're called to be in relationship with the real God. Understanding, of course, that he's our creator, that he is omniscient, omnipresent, that we'll never be able to fully comprehend his mind. And yet God wants to be known. God wants us to be in relationship with him. He wants us, like Habakkuk, to ask questions, to go to the Bible and hear him speak and find answers. Just as a small child cannot comprehend everything about their parents. There's all kinds of things about me my daughters don't know about me because they're too little to understand all of my past and all of my history and all the things that make me who I am. And yet my daughters know me and love me and are in relationship with me. We are father to daughter. And so God wants to be in relationship to us, even you know, as we are his children and he is our father. We cannot fully understand our father, but we can begin to draw into relationship. And as we grow, we'll learn more and more about our father. And so God wants us to have faith in contrast to the things we face in the world. 
the weaknesses of our sinful nature, the attack of the world, the devil, these things can threaten us, yes, but they can't threaten God. So our faith in our rock, our refuge, our fortress that is God cannot be shaken. God wants us to see his fullness, but God also wants us to see the weakness of everything that threatens us. So he wants us to see the world around us. He wants Habakkuk to recognize the Chaldeans for who they really are. So in chapter 1, he builds up their strength. Yes, they are a legitimate threat to you. And then we're going to see in chapter 2, but they're not really a threat. They just look threatening. But they are fully in my control. I am the one who's raised them up, and I am the one who's going to curse them in chapter 2 and destroy them. And so Habakkuk needs to to reorient his thinking towards these Chaldeans. Not as, oh, they're more wicked than us, or oh, they're more powerful than us, but oh, they are a tool in the hands of my God who I trust and have faith in. And so, so God is using the Chaldeans to reorient and to strengthen Habakkuk's faith. And in so doing, hopefully, I pray, help strengthen our faith. And so what does, what does this mean for us today? I think my hope in is that Habakkuk 1 will help you to think critically about whatever threats and enemies that you see in the world. Whether you're, you're worried about foreign powers or politicians, whether it's, it's global warming or other news headlines, or if it's, if it's your own struggles. Is it loneliness? Is it sin that is ravaging your life? Is it broken relationships? Is it, is it physical ailments? Is it, is it sickness that is upon your body? Whatever it is, that fills your heart with fear. God wants you to see not just your fear, but to see your faith, to see Him, to see a God who is bigger, who is stronger, who all of these things that scare us lie in His hand and in, in His control. Well, we'll see this as we go through the rest of this book. God talks about many different aspects of life and how all of it's under His control, and He surrenders none of it. The, the Chaldeans and Babylonians are only raised up because God allows them to. Sickness is only allowed to exist because God allows it to. All the evils of this world exist by God's allowing it to exist. Not God's causing, but God's allowing. It will exist for a short amount of time, and then God will destroy all of the evil in this world. And secondly, I would encourage you to take your hurts, your cares, your questions. Take these fears before God at the place where He answers sin the place where he answers all these questions once and for all. And that's on the, at the cross. Habakkuk is, is a book written by a prophet before the cross. He can't yet, he can hardly imagine the Chaldeans attacking, much less what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And yet in asking all these questions, he's begging for a savior. There's, there's a, a resonance here that points us right to the cross. It says here, there will be a place where God once and for all deals with sin. Sin is going to be taken care of once and for all. And it won't be God raising up nation after nation. It will be God sending His only begotten Son for you, for me, so that sin can be paid for. And that wicked men will put Jesus to death. The devil will think that he's triumphed and will, will, will bite the heel of Jesus, but Jesus will break the head of the devil. Satan will not hold him. Death will not hold him. And Jesus rises again. And, and there we see the final fulfillment of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a book yearning, as all of the minor prophets are, a book yearning for the Gospels, yearning for the New Testament, yearning for Jesus to come. And so there's this, this deep yearning in Habakkuk, and I want you to see that. And, and as you're struggling and looking at the world, 
looking at your own life, looking at all the things going on around you, and God, why is it like this? Recognize that there's an underlying yearning in all of that for God to bring justice on the cross, and then again, finally on Judgment Day. There's a yearning in each and every one of our hearts for heaven, a yearning for when everything will be made right, when all evil will be destroyed and cast into darkness, and all evil will be removed forever, and that we'll be in the presence of God. And so we're called to move towards Jesus. And, and when we get to heaven and we meet Jesus, he will, not have, he will not hold over our heads that He had to rescue us. I think this is worth, worth thinking about as we close here. Jesus loves His people. He loves His disciples. He loves His sheep. He loves and cares for them and sees their pain. Again and again in the Scriptures, He heals and He preaches. And sometimes we can underplay the, the healing that defines so much of His earthly ministry. But Jesus did both at every opportunity. He doesn't rescue us to, to mock us, but to restore us. You know, if, if you have to bail your friend out of trouble, you know, their car breaks down, you might tease them about it for a little while. Ah, I, had to come, I had to come save you. You owe me one. But that's not the spirit that Jesus ever takes. Jesus, we're not going to walk into heaven and Jesus is going to be like, you owe me. No, Jesus is going to love us and care for us. We are his sheep. We are his children. We are his creation. As, as our loving Savior, he'll put his arms around us and say, I am glad that I died for you. You are my child, and I love you. And we see this in the way that Jesus calls us to live. Look finally with me at John 15, 12 through 17. John 15, 12 through 17. And considering, you know, what is Jesus' perspective on the fact that he was killed by evil men? How does Jesus think about the cross? Well, he tells us. John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus is about to do. He's doing it out of love, not out of obligation or because his arm was twisted. He loves them. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. He's bringing us into the relationship. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you, that you would love one another. And so as we look to the cross, as we see the fulfillment of Habakkuk's cries, remember that the cross is ultimately God's act of love. God loved us enough to send Jesus to the cross. And, and Jesus loves us enough to go willingly to the cross, to die for us. And then he calls us out of that love, out of that rescue, to love one another. And, and this, is, this is the final defeat of evil. The final defeat of evil is not nation attacking nation, but it's love overcoming hate. It's love overcoming all of the evils of the world. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate demonstration of love. And so we're called to love one another, having seen the way that Jesus loves us. And we're not called to, to raise up armies and more armies. We're called to go to others and love others, to share the gospel, to share the good news with them. Conclusion. If you're struggling with questions about your life or your life circumstances, about evil in this world or in your own heart, I want you to find your answers at the foot of the cross. Go to the Bible. Look to what Jesus has said, what Jesus has done. He called Habakkuk as a prophet to answer his questions. He knew that Habakkuk's faith 
was waning and weakening. And so God demonstrates exactly what Habakkuk needs to hear, that he is God, that he's in control, that his plan is good and even better than the plans that Habakkuk could have come up with. It's unexpected. It's strange to hear the Chaldeans are coming, but God has a plan that involves the Chaldeans. He's going to work through the Chaldeans. You know, I wish we had time to go through all of the Old Testament and see all the ways that God is going to work through the Chaldeans. You know, read the book of Daniel and watch what God does through the reign of the Chaldeans. It's amazing. God has plans through the Chaldeans, and he has plans through the Roman Empire as well. He has plans that put Jesus to death, and he has plans that save his people. And so I'd encourage you, if you have questions about what is God doing with your life, what, what does God want from me? I remember as a young man just begging God in tears, God, what are you doing with me? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What job am I to take? Am I ever going to get married? All these questions. And God has a plan for your life. And as you're play, praying, recognize that God is orchestrating the answers already before you've even begun to pray. God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't, you know, put you in the waiting queue. And, you know, when it's your turn to come up, then you'll get to ask your question. And then you've got to go back to the queue for the next question. No. We have full access to the throne of God. We're always able to ask more questions. You know, when you have small children, they endlessly have questions. And God recognizes that we endlessly have questions. And so God delights in answering our questions. That's why he gave us the Bible, so that we'd have a copy that we could hold in our hands of all the answers to all of our questions and begin to, to understand him more. So when you're struggling with questions, when you're asking, God, how long? God, what is my life for? Find your hope, find your faith in what God has already done, already demonstrated, and the way that he is in control over all the things that bring you fear. Pray, have faith in the Lord that God will use evil for good in your life just as he used evil for good throughout all of the scriptures. All of the scriptures show God overwhelming evil as evil thinks it's laughing, as it thinks it's thriving. God will overrule all the evil that scares you, all of the evil that you see. It will work wonders in your life as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that a holy God delights in using wickedness to make your plans known. We thank you, God, that you are not apathetic, that you are not far off, that you are not impatient with us, that you are not quick to punish, that you are not frustrated when we ask so many questions. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, that we can go to you and that you build up our faith that you show us the weakness and fragility of all the things that scare us, and that you show us your strength, that you are our rock and our refuge. Lord, help us to cling to this beautiful truth that you are the one we have faith in. It's not faith for faith's sake. It's not faith that we well up in our own hearts. Lord, it's faith in you. Help us, Lord, to see you as we need to see you. This morning, Lord, help each and every one of us to see you as you are, to see the things that scare us for what they are, and insignificant in your eyes. And help us, Lord, to trust that you are working your great purpose in each and every one of our lives, and that your will will be done, and that nothing will stop that. Help us, Lord, to trust in you with our lives. In Jesus' name.